Chair Guest with us. We've been studying through the book of Ecclesiastes. We now find ourselves today in chapter 4. Our time together will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word. So if you didn't bring one with you or don't have one that you can call your own, you should be able to look underneath the seat in front of you or near you and uh, open one of those. We should be around page 553 in the Bible that are in the chairs uh, around you. I'm going to begin reading in just a moment in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. But before I do, I just want to extend an invitation. If you're a guest with us and you didn't know we were having a fellowship meal afterwards today, but you're thinking, I would like to stay for that, but I don't know if they accounted for me. We did. We're glad you're here. We'd love for you to stay. This is our formal invitation to all of our guests. Please stay uh, and be with us today. We'd love to meet you and greet you, hear your story, get to know you, share some food with you, and enjoy these privileges that we often took for granted, but we will never take for granted again. I'm going to begin reading Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. The preacher writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us today. And if you're the type of person who likes to write in your Bible, underline every time you see the word better. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken." Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who will come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our attention to your scripture, we ask for help. Help that we might understand your word so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are reminded weekly as we gather together and turn our attention to your word that it's in these moments in particular that the enemy assaults us. He makes us think of things that we need to do that are good things. He reminds us of sins that we have committed and he holds them against us. He distracts us with just the simple things that are taking place in the room around us or something that we need to give our mind and attention to later. Father, we ask now that you would help us to focus our minds and our attention on your word, that the enemy would not be able to snatch the good word that we are receiving. Father, we pray for those of us who are Christians that this would be a moment where we grow in the knowledge of Christ, that we grow in repentance and faith, that we grow in our knowledge of the Holy One of Israel. 
And Father, for those who might be here today who are not yet Christians, but they find themselves in this church, in the hearing of this message, with these people studying these scriptures, we pray that you would be merciful to remove the heart of stone and insert the heart of flesh and cause them to be born again. We thank you, Father, for bringing them here today. We ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God. Amen. We love comparisons, all of us do. We and our children make them to a fault. In our household, the worst expressions are constantly evaluating what others are getting or doing in light of what they are getting or doing. Why did they get two pieces of pizza when I only got one? How come there were 27 items in their Christmas stocking, but only 26 items in my Christmas stocking? She had 14 minutes with the lightsaber. I only had 13 minutes. He had five and a half chips on his plate, but you gave me five. Right or wrong, comparisons are the way that we often differentiate between good and better, better and best. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 through 16, the preacher is making comparisons. And he tells us in verses 6, 9, and 13 that some things are better than others. Notice first, envy versus contentment. Look again in chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Last week, we saw from chapter 3, verse 16 to chapter 4, verse 16, what the preacher sees in the world around him actually structures this portion of the book. Just once again, follow along with me if you move up to chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw, and then drop down to chapter 3, verse 22. So I saw, and then chapter 4, verse 1, again I saw, and then chapter 4, verse 4, then I saw, and then chapter 4, verse 7, again I saw, and then chapter 4, verse 15, I saw. In 3.16 through 4.3, the preacher looked out on the world and he saw injustice and cruelty, inequality and oppression. But now as he continues his observation of everything under the sun, he turns to a new topic, verse 4, then I saw, and what did he see? A desire to be better than one's neighbor rather than to excel, verse 4. That all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. What motivates the early mornings and the late nights? The grinding day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out. The workaholism and perfectionism that characterizes so many people around the world and in our country in particular. A desire to stay ahead of your neighbor. A longing to possess what somebody else has a craving to outshine rather than to be outshone. Because as one pastor said, deep in our hearts, we want to be noticed 
and to be the focus of attention, and that desire is capable of driving all that we do and the reason that we do it. It drives us to disregard the command to love our neighbor as ourself as we work behind the scenes to take everything that they own. As the old saying goes, any friend can share your sorrows and failures, but it takes a true friend to share your joys and successes. The preacher begins to probe deep as he shows us that all of our work and toil and labor and striving are motivated by the cancer of envy because we see the world only in terms of winners and losers. Their gain is our loss. Their blessing is our curse. Their success is our failure. Their open door is our closed door. So we pine to excel to be better than our neighbor. The preacher is not saying that the desire to excel is unhealthy. Rather, it is in light of his quest throughout the entirety of Ecclesiastes, how to profit, how to gain, how to benefit in this life, that he says, if this is what motivates all of the labor under the sun, then work, verse 4, also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, undoubtedly, even reading this and speaking about this for just even a few moments causes us to begin to think, is this really true of all work and all skill? Can't I just love my job in what I do? Can't I just desire to be the best that I can be? Perhaps. But like any good preacher, the preacher uses hyperbole to make his point and in so doing forces us to ask questions. Let me ask you something right now. Do you pray for your coworkers to be promoted? Do you rejoice in the opportunities that are given to other people even when they're not given to you? Do you resent the successes of your family members and your friends and your fellow church members? Do you give thanks for what you have or merely lament to other people what you do not have? The preacher helps us see that it is the suspicion or perhaps the realization that others are gaining more from life than we are that leads us to compete with them in the insane rat race of striving to outdo them. Rebecca Conyendike de Young recounts the poem of Victor Hugo in which envy and greed are each granted the opportunity to receive whatever they wish on one condition, that the other receives a double portion. Envy immediately replies, I wish to be blind in one eye. Conan Dyke de Young explains the envious person resents another person's good gifts because they are superior to his or her own. It's not that the other person is better. It's by comparison, their superiority makes you feel your own lack. Their inferiority, your inferiority is felt more acutely. So dragging other people down and taking from them what you cannot have makes us feel better about ourselves. Friends, if the providences entrusted to other people make you feel like a failure, then you have discovered the envy that the preacher detects here in Ecclesiastes. Well, if envy motivates all skill and all work, then perhaps it's better to not work, right? Wrong. The preacher says in verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. 
The idiom of folding one's hand is found elsewhere in the Bible, specifically in the wisdom literature, as a synonym for somebody who's idle or lazy or not hardworking. But in context, it seems to really be the result of despair. If I can't have what other people have, then I'm not going to work like other people work. The result, verse 5, the fool has to eat his own flesh. That is, his idle laziness eats not only what he has, but what he is, and as one commentator observes, erodes his self-control, his grasp of reality, his capacity for care, and in the end, his own self-respect. It's to these unhappy ways of life that the preacher holds out the true alternative, contentment. Notice what he says in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Thankfully receiving my handful without envying another person's handful. Working diligently for my handful without despairing about the size of somebody else's handful. Refusing to think that if it things were only different. I would finally be the better person that I want to be or the better father I long to be or mother I long to be or friend I long to be or sibling I long to be because I don't know the future or what lies around the corner, whether good or ill. Perhaps these really are the best days of my life because I'll die tomorrow. Friends, contentment lives the life that you have now, not the life that you hope to receive in the future and cannot control. And it invites restful quietness rather than restless striving. Are you content? Why are you so dissatisfied with life? Would you be completely satisfied if the thing that you feel you most long to possess right now, whatever it is, was yours forever? You would never be discontent again. The preacher helps us see that there is a freedom in not holding out for a better offer from life, but being content with the handful that we have. But the world tells us that will never fill us up. And in the insane rat race, what we need is two handfuls. Envy versus contentment. Notice second, isolation versus community. Look in verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Once again, the preacher shifts his focus as he looks out on life's landscape in verse 7. Again, I saw, and what does he see now? A person who is altogether alone. No spouse, no son, no sibling, no family, no friend, no one. And what does this person do with their independence? They labor unencumbered. Verse 8, there is no end to all his toil. There is just simply no telling how many hours this person puts in at the office each week. 50, 60, 70, more. There is no end to all his toil. Sending emails before work and leaving after hours and working on the weekends, there is no end to all his toil. There is no illusion of work-life balance for this person. No days off, no holidays, no vacation. There is no end to all his toil. 
But that's okay, right? Because he's accumulated wealth, and he's achieved status, and he's received the respect of his colleagues and coworkers. He's acquired possessions for himself, and he's made it to the very top. Sleepless nights and obsessing over reports paid off after all. So verse 8, why is he never satisfied with the riches he has earned? Brothers and sisters, the world has trained us and catechized us to believe that we are what we produce. That wealth and riches and popularity and fame, the status and pleasure, that work and accomplishments will eventually bring us the happiness that we all long to experience and the wholeness that we all want to fill and the fulfillment that we desperately long for in our lives. Some of us throw ourselves into it because there is this gaping hole in our hearts. We long for something to finally satisfy us. So we strive and we work and we labor so that we can obtain and finally believe that we matter. The preacher of Ecclesiastes sees that this is false, that this is a vanity under the sun, that the pursuit of wealth and possessions and merit and the praise of others will never satisfy. On the contrary, verse 8, this is an unhappy business that isolates and alienates. This man, verse 8, never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? It feels purposeful. It looks meaningful. And I can tell you what you all already know to be true. It will be applauded by everybody as hard work and diligence. That's somebody who has their life together. But this picture of a lonely, pointless, busy person reveals that even with a spouse or a son, a family member or a friend, this man would have no time for them because he is convinced that all his toiling is for their benefit, although his heart is elsewhere and devoted and wedded to his projects. When I was hired to work in an office environment during graduate school, I knew very clearly that my hours were nine to five, but I also knew that there was an unspoken approval of emails time-stamped before and after office hours. An approval that I desperately wanted because I so desperately wanted to succeed, whatever that meant, and I still don't know, and belong among whom I'm still not sure. Are you overworking for the praise of others? Is your routine in your life so strict that there is no time for anyone else? whether you're married or single, young or old? Does your pursuit of wealth that we probably call stability in our lives prevent you from having family or friends, from joining the local church and serving meaningfully in its context, from resting and enjoying this life? Are you a slave to your work, whether in the home or outside of the home. There are all kinds of ways that somebody can end up alone, and we can certainly speculate as to why this man in particular was alone. 
workaholism, individualism, probably some level of narcissism, which is why we become the workaholics that we all become, because we long to be meaningful and people to know it. But the preacher shifts from isolation to begin to reflect on the value of community in verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-fold cord is not quickly broken. The preacher seems to be deliberately evoking Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for a man that he should be alone. And like Genesis 2, the preacher begins to focus on the practical values of companionship. They have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. If two lie together, they keep warm. Two will withstand an attacker. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. But unlike Genesis 2, these things are not exclusively true of marriage, though these verses are often read at weddings. The companionship that the preacher describes also includes things like friendship and church membership. And though it is often downplayed in our individualistic Lone Ranger society, the Bible reveals to us Jesus' marvelous capacity for forming close friendships in his life, not least of which was with John the beloved disciple. Good friends become as basic to life and health as the knowing of how to cup your hands when there's not a cup around to be able to drink water. So, as one author suggested, the most self-loving action any of us can perform in a lifetime is learning how to develop and sustain close friendships. But where are those friendships to be forged for the Christian? Especially when I know what is true for so many of you is true of so many people that we all meet. Though you are around people right now, you are very lonely. Friends, the place that you are to make friends is the local church. Brothers and sisters, and I'm here to tell you that your closest friends in this life should be other Christian people, and I'm going to suggest Christian people who are members of your local church. Those are the people who see you, Lord willing, more than just week in and week out. Those are the people who know how you came to faith in Christ. Those are the people that you are serving with in the context of Christian ministry. Those are the people that you are to minister to as a part of the body of Christ. Those are the people in particular that you have a responsibility for. Members of Christ Church Westchester, do you want to know who you're responsible for? Grab one of the membership directories from Melissa Medane, look at the other 103 members on that role, you make 104, and see that those are the people that you are chiefly responsible for in this life. Their well-being, their happiness, their satisfaction, their care, their discipleship their correction, their advancement, their blessing. We see this is to happen in the context of a congregation. And when you join the church, what you're actually doing is you're adding your cord to our fellowship so that by God's grace, it's not easily broken. Together, we labor side by side for the sake of the gospel. Together, we bear one another's burdens. Together we admonish and encourage and rebuke and discipline and disciple and care for one another as the eternal day of God draws near. 
members, the reason that we read our membership covenant when we gather together for our members' meetings is to remind one another of our mutual responsibility for one another. The reason we hung it up in our four-year area is so that we can remind ourselves of our responsibility for one another. In community, our lives are strong and enduring like the threefold cord. So why then? Are deep relationships so uncommon and challenging among Christians today? There are many things that could be said, not least of which is sin. I believe busyness is one of them, a problem Drew Hunter addresses very well in his book called Made for Friendship, so well that I'm going to read you an extensive quote. Busyness crowds out friendship from our lives. When I asked a fellow church member if he had any close relationships, he said, I'm too busy for friends. Between work and family, he didn't think he had any space left. We can commend him for those good commitments, but isn't that like saying we're too busy for water because we're committed to air and food? Each life stage carries its unique challenges. Teenagers with school and sports, young professionals with demanding work hours, parents with competing responsibilities. Where can we find time for friendship if we don't have time for sleep? Of course, sometimes we're occupied with less redeeming priorities. Evening shows, repetitive news cycles, social media, and other potential time wasters. Sometimes we're more lazy busy than crazy busy. Either way, we feel strapped. We're time broke with nothing left for deep relationships. Even the perception of busyness hinders us from forming strong relationships. One friend said that he never asked me to get together because he assumed I was too busy. When I gave off the perception of busyness, I actually communicated that I didn't have time for him. Every time you or I tell a would-be deep friend that life is busy, we're really communicating and saying, we're too full for friendship. Nothing says no chance we'll ever be friends like, let's get together, how about next month? Why do we so rarely walk out the front door, go to somebody else's house, sit down with them, and spend time in uninterrupted conversation about the deep things in our lives that matter? Why is it that you can find people who love one another, traveling on vacation together, ignoring one another, while they're enjoying the most wonderful moments of their lives together? The preacher calls us to see that community is better than isolation. And busyness blinds us from seeing that two are better than one. Let me ask you, what tasks or jobs might be able to fall by the wayside this week in your life so that relationships can begin to flourish? It might be true that no one has introduced themselves to you here at this church. I find that a little hard to be true. We're not good at much. We try to be pretty good at that, but that is possible. But it can also be true that though you desperately long for relationships, you're too busy to make time for anybody to have a meaningful relationship with you. What can you do this week to be a better friend to fellow members in this church? No matter how difficult or how impossible it might seem to do, it is necessary because you were made for friendship. So, the Feast of Friendship, O'Callaghan says this, the full intensity of love 
commitment, devotion, and inner unity that typify the best of friends is an initiation into the communion that all will experience in Christ in the everlasting kingdom. Therefore, to pursue friendship in the beauty of holiness is to drink deeply of the mystery of God's kingdom. And in that kingdom, God generously gives us his friends as our own when we become his friend. So the question for all of us is, how do we become a friend of God? We become a friend of God by repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. When we repent of our sins and place our trust in Jesus, we become friends of God instead of enemies of God. But how do we know that we actually have done it right? It's one of the questions that people will often ask, will it feel different? Will I look different? Will I begin to just think different things? How, how will I know that I have actually believed rightly that Jesus is the Christ? That I've actually repented from my sins and trusted him? John tells us, Jesus, when he records Jesus' words in chapter 15, verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. He commands repentance and faith. He commands that we abide in his love, chiefly displayed in what he has done for us on the cross. But in that very same chapter, he commands that we love one another. That's how you will know that you are Jesus' disciple, that you have repented and trusted in his substitutionary work of the cross, that you are obeying his commandments. It is impossible to come to the Bible and see what Jesus reveals and say, I know he says that, I reject that, but I'm still a Christian. If that's you, you're not a Christian. And by your love for other Christian people, how can you say that you love God, but you hate your brother whom you see? The fool's individualistic life is weak and is destined to be broken. But a threefold cord is not easily broken. Friends, even preparing for this, I know that this is weighty for so many of us because you long for friendship. Myself too. Friendship will inconvenience itself for other people. Friendship will go out of its way to love and to minister to other people. And that is what we are called to be as the body of Christ together. Friends, not Sunday acquaintances. Envy versus contentment. Isolation versus community. Notice third, foolishness versus listening. Look at verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, of all whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. As the preacher shifts his focus for the third time now in our text today, he verse first of verse 15, saw that a poor but wise youth is of more value than a king who is no longer open to advice. The king, as we have seen, is the very person in Ecclesiastes that we would most expect to be able to profit or benefit or gain in this life simply because of his lineage or his position in life. 
But the preacher begins to stress that not even the king can be expected to profit or benefit or gain in this life if he does not take advice, as he emphasizes the importance of listening. Because as one commentator noted, an essential ingredient in the wisdom experience is the ability to listen. Solomon asked for a listening heart as the gift by which he might govern the people of God. The fool is precisely the one who will not listen. If you ask the people who know you best, if you're a good listener, what would they say? Would they say that you are quick to listen and slow to speak, or would they say you are slow to listen and quick to speak? Friends, people no longer open to advice or teaching or correction. People who can no longer listen, and we all know the know-it-all in our life, and sometimes we are the know-it-all in our life. Like a king no longer open to advice or teaching or correction, a king who can no longer listen, are vulnerable to catastrophic consequences in their life. You see it in the passage. Though the Hebrew in this section is very challenging and it's hard to know, are there just two people involved or three people involved in this better than proverb because of verse 15, it is very clear that a wise person who listens is better than a foolish person who does not listen. But the preacher has an ironic twist to the tale, doesn't he? Though verse 14, he went from prison to the throne, verse uh, 16 tells us that those who come later will not rejoice in him. It's not the real world of kings that's in view, but the real world of human advancement and achievement in general. The preacher is concerned to show that poverty with wisdom is better than advancement with folly just as it is better to have a handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil, just as two are better than one. Although a wise person who listens is better than a foolish person who doesn't, and though wisdom amassed a large following of people for this man, does any of it even matter if the wise person loses all his popularity? Once again, the preacher helps us live in the world the way that it is, not the way that we want it to be as he helps us see the short-lived popularity of the great. Everyone will go the way of the old king, not necessarily because of their faults, but simply because time and familiarity will make them no longer interesting. Everyone who reaches the pinnacle of human achievement, the popular top 100 people of Time magazine, will eventually be stranded there and left behind. And that, again, is one of the anticlimaxes and empty achievements of Ecclesiastes. Advancement brings greater toil than before, but not necessarily greater thanks. By comparison, the preacher helps us see that contentment and community and listening are better than envy and isolation and foolishness. This is the way. Friends, let us walk in it together. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to hear the words of eternal life today. That we would hear that we were made to be friends with God by faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. That we would hear 
that friendship with God manifests itself not only in repentance and faith, but a love for your people, for friendship with your people. You have called us friends and called us to be friends with one another. Father, I pray for all of the members of this church that you would forgive us of the ways that we have been poor friends to one another. And Father, we pray this week together as a congregation that we would grow in friendship and that you would help us to work past and through all of the things that we would throw up that would seem to make us unable to be friends with other people, whether it's that their socioeconomic status is different than ours, or their relational status is different than ours, or that they have a different type of job than we do, or a different type of educational background than we do, or they have children and we do not yet have children, or whatever it might be, the thing that we would throw up and say, this is the thing that prevents us from being close to that person. Lord, help us to work through the awkward moments. Because in any meaningful relationship, we have to work through awkward moments. And we pray that you would help us to grow so that we might demonstrate to the world the beauty of the people of God reconciled by faith in the Son of God, living their life together as your children. And Father, we pray for any who have not yet trusted Christ, that today that they would hear the voice of the one calling out to them, come, be saved, be born again. Today is the day of salvation. Amen.